Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to uh, Viewpoints. Firstly, Amy Haywood, who's the Deputy Program Director of Education with the Grattan Institute, and her colleague, Annika Stobart, who's a Senior Associate in Education at the Grattan Institute. And uh, I was uh, struck by some uh, pieces and commentary uh, in the media recently uh, in the area of school buildings and their structures and how they do and do not relate to best practice in teaching and learning and uh, Amy Haywood and Annika Stobart were, were at the forefront of that, uh, that what's become an interesting debate in school design and uh, effectiveness of teaching and learning. So, uh, but firstly, welcome to both Amy and Annika. Thanks, Henry. Thank you, Henry. Lovely to be here again. Absolutely. But you both sound very similar, so I'll probably forget halfway through this interview who I'm actually <laughs> speaking with. We've got a three-way uh, hook-up here, listeners, between Amy, Annika and myself, and both your names start with O, so that's going to make it uh, even more confusing. But we'll get cracking. Um, we'll start with you, Amy. Uh, what drew you to this uh, this particular issue, school buildings? I mean, your focus in a lot of your work's speaks directly to teaching and learning practice. Uh, so buildings, where did it come into the equation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we came to this topic because we're interested in teaching and learning and we could see from the work that we do going in and out of schools that actually this was having a really big impact on teaching and learning. Uh, we could see, you know, when we visit classes that teachers were struggling, in particularly these open plan classrooms, and so we really wanted to have a look at and investigate, you know, what's the evidence base for creating classrooms in that way? And Henry, you've probably been in and out of these classrooms, but to just paint you a picture for those who are listening of sure. what this looks like, um, you know, we, we, we ventured into uh, a local primary school and we're in a, an open plan classroom, which was really a big space with two classrooms in it. So you're talking about about 50 kids in one classroom and there was just in between, the, in the middle of the big space, there was one large pillar, I suppose, that had a whiteboard on either side. So that's clearly, I suppose, where you'd be doing a lot of the instruction from. Uh, but then there was nothing else in between that. So we really noted, gee, this is a noisy, noisy space. And we were listening to one of the teachers, you know, instruct her students and kind of give them instructions for what they needed to do next. But her voice was completely drowned out by what was happening in the second classroom. Those students were doing an, a an activity and making some noise and you really couldn't hear exactly what the teacher uh, was talking about in the first classroom. So those kind of open plan classrooms are really essentially ones that where you've got multiple classes, might be year three or year four, all in the same room, uh, often without any way of actually separating between the two classrooms. And they may have, you know, their desks in rows, they might have them spread out, they might have nooks, they might also have bean bags as well. There is an important distinction in, in this debate, and I think you're right to talk about it as a debate, but it's a debate we need to have, that open plan is not the same as flexible classrooms. So flexible classrooms are ones where you actually can um, move walls, and we are in support of genuinely flexible classrooms where you can actually truly soundproof, you can put up divider walls, and you can manage that noise for quiet activities, allow for bigger groups where it makes sense to do so, uh, but we, we don't... Um, agree with those open plan environments where you can't actually manage sound between two different classrooms. Now, it's interesting because when I read your piece, they had uh, commentary 
in relation to addressing that issue of noise. And noise specialists said that, uh, uh, according to their measurements, uh, the noise levels weren't beyond the noise levels of those which were described as being, you know, suitable for, for, for people's health. Yeah, correct, Henry. Uh, we actually looked at the evidence around all of this to actually assess whether open plan classrooms are good for learning or not. And it actually turns out that the evidence is really unclear. So there was a uh, 2018 systematic review of studies that looked at this issue all the way back to the 60s when they were particularly popular. And there's only around... They only found 21 relevant studies that looked at this issue of its impact on academic achievement. And it found that there was, the findings of these studies were inconsistent. So there's really more research work that needs to be done here to really understand what's going on. But as you, as you pointed out, um, there are studies that have looked at noise in these environments mm. and measured... For example, speech perception, uh, so looking at how well students can hear the teacher when they're standing um, the front of the room, instructing and teaching the, the students content, which is a core part of learning um, for students. So, these, so there was particularly an Australian study uh, that was done in 2015 that compared speech perception in traditional and open plan kindergarten classrooms across six schools and that found that noise coming from other classes in the open plan setting led to students misunderstanding their teacher. Uh, and this was the study that also found that um, traditional classrooms were the only classroom type to be within or close to recommended noise levels for students. And uh, there is also a broader literature that looks more generally at the impact of noise and how that um, affects student learning. And this has also found other things around students' ability uh, to read, um, like for example, the speed and accuracy of their reading comprehension. Mm. Yes, Annika, I'm aware of that and I think it's a good point. One of the points from my perspective, and either of you might like to answer this, Amy, Annika, is um, I would have thought that if open plan design classrooms, that is where you can have two or four classrooms or even more without walls between them all in a one big large space, I would have thought that uh, the, the benefit of that would have centred around not that the fact that there were no walls there, but that the fact that the kids could move very fluidly and flexibly into different groups around that room, uh, rather than go from building to building. Um, what did you observe in your in your research on whether that was something that was uh, widely used and whether or not uh, it was successful uh, if it was used? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, and I guess that, that goes back to Amy's point earlier about, um, you know, that we support flexible classroom arrangements because um, there is, of course, you know, group activities that um, te teachers run with their students that, that may make use of larger spaces. So being able to have divider walls that you can open and close um, is important. Uh, but without that ability to really shut off and create a quiet space for a class. Um, that, that's that's the that's the real issue here. When 
Um, there's no ability to create quiet time, for example, testing or quiet reading. And um, I think there's about uh, the evidence suggests there's like 45 to 75% of student time at school is spent listening and comprehending. Uh, so it's a big chunk of time really that students need a quiet environment. So um, they're not spending the whole day running around doing um, play and group activities. So um, yeah, that's kind of how we've come to the conclusion. And also I would point out here that there's uh, the noise factor uh, particular, is particularly worrying for some students, such as students with hearing impairments, auditory processing disorders or ADHD, um, and even second language learners who really need to be able to hear the, the teacher more clearly. Um, and these arrangements, sometimes the, the open plan advocates say that they, you know, we can, they can establish nooks or quiet areas for these students to have a quiet space to do their learning. But... Uh, our view really is that we shouldn't be trying to push those students away from the broader class, but we actually want to make sure that they're fully included in, in classroom activities and open plan uh, class settings just make that harder. Mm, absolutely. Mm, that's a great point. And if I, if I can add, I'd probably say our thinking is we want to make the job for teachers as easy as possible. We want to make it really easy for them to be able to um, prepare and deliver uh, great teaching in their classroom, which will lead to great student learning. And we think, well, flexibility is great and we love flexible work, work environment classrooms where you can actually soundproof and change and partition uh, between wall, between classrooms. We, at a base level, want to have rooms where students are in the best position to learn and teachers are in the best position to teach. Um, and they're able to teach according to what we know works best. So we know, you know, there's evidence-based strategies for high-impact teaching, like explicit teaching. That's where a teacher is able to explain a key concept, procedure, model it, um, and then work with the whole class. That's actually really difficult to do in a noisy open plan environment. So yes, you might get more flexibility to do bigger group work, but it's really hard when you're in a situation where, say, you know, you're teaching your year five class fractions and then the class that is a few metres away next door is actually practising their Mandarin oral language presentation, for example. That's really hard to manage and in that instance, the trade-off uh, isn't really worth it for the impact that it has on student learning. And it leaves teachers in a really tricky position because they feel quite helpless to do anything about it when they've been allocated a space like this. Mm. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. My experience in the late 70s where they were in vogue, uh, uh, open plan classrooms, was that it, it was almost paradoxical that while we had these open plan spaces, teachers were putting up walls and um, shelving and everything between them because you actually had less flexibility in a room with four different teachers. You had to be virtually doing a very similar type of uh, lesson in terms of noise level or you would get the children distracted uh, one way or the other. We need to take a short break, Annika and Amy, can you hold the line?
Welcome back to Viewpoints Listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossick. I'm in a little bit of discussion with Amy Haywood, Deputy Program Director of Education at the Grattan Institute, and her colleague, Annika Stobart, who's a Senior Associate in Education at the Grattan Institute. And we're looking at um, what you could call open plan uh, teaching spaces, uh, and they're very much in vogue across uh, particularly public schools now, uh, and their value and their contribution or otherwise to teaching and learning. Welcome back, Amy and Annika. Thanks, Henry. Great to be here, Henry. Now, you spoke to teachers about open plan classrooms, I'm sure, in your research. They're the ones that are at the coalface of it. What's the feedback they gave you? Well, teachers' views, it, it looks like they vary. Um, in terms of the studies that we could find, looking into the research, uh, there's a Victorian study that um, showed that teachers in bigger schools or with more resources are more likely to like an open plan classroom. But they also said, you know, there are conditions. They still have to manage and monitor noise levels to make it work for them. Um, our argument is that we think classrooms should be designed to support effective teaching, not create more work for teachers. It's really difficult in an open plan environment to coordinate lesson timetables and teaching activities if you are sharing the same space uh, and it limits what you can do with your particular class. And it makes it harder work for teachers. You know, another study that we looked at, um, teachers in open plan classrooms actually needed to elevate their voice a lot more than those in um, a traditional classroom. And that can, you know, strain their vocal cords. There's obviously vocal problems. So, and, and then we also see uh, and have heard, as you said before, Henry, a lot of teachers and school leaders coming to us and talking about how they tried to remedy when they've ended up in an open plan environment. Sometimes they have to put up shelves um, or div dividing whiteboards to just distinguish between the spaces, uh, but that can't necessarily always help with the noise. So we've heard a lot from teachers and school leaders about how difficult these spaces can be to manage. Interesting you should say that. Um, one of the things that, uh, from my research way back in the building education revolution days where um, we were given uh, options of four or six classroom open learning spaces or gymnasiums, um, one of the things I found out was that uh, they're actually cheaper to build. The less walls you've got, and maybe it's a cynical view, the cheaper the building. Uh, what do you say to that? I guess um, it's, I, I haven't actually seen evidence about the cost of different types of bills, so I can't really um, say definitively either way. Um, but, yeah, it does seem to kind of coincide with a bit of a trend of open plan workplaces, open plan classrooms, testing different ways of um, setting up uh, work or learning spaces and in, 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 in innovation in that space, um, which, you know, might have a cost factor behind it. Um, but uh, I, I guess, you know, with innovation, it's really important that that's based on, on evidence. And, um, you know, we, of course, we should be we testing different ways of setting up classrooms to best um, enhance and maximise student learning. Uh, but the real problem here is that there is a real paucity of evidence in support of having open plan classrooms that uh, can't manage noise well. And so we shouldn't be jumping the gun in this space to um, to going full steam ahead down this road when there really isn't um, the sufficient evidence at this point. 
No, I, I agree. I remember looking back at it then and I spoke to some, some people in the field of educational research and as they uh, they, they concurred with what you've found out, uh, Amy and Annika, and that is that there's not very strong evidence around internationally that open plan class uh, learning spaces, classrooms, actually do deliver equal or better uh, teaching outcomes. So what's the rationale for continuing to build these open plan classrooms? That's got to be the question. Good question. It's quite <laughs> hard to pinpoint exactly what's going on here. Um, but, you know, they, as you said earlier in, in our conversation, that they were uh, quite popular in the 60s and 70s um, and then kind of went out of fashion and, and seemed to be back in on trend again. Um, and, look, part of its re-emergence does seem to be driven by an architectural fad. So, you know, uh, it looks good in, in brochures, um, having lots of different colours in a classroom with bean bags and um, little group tables and uh, so on. And But, um, you know, it, it, it's really interesting that there's, there's, there's architects kind of that have driven um, a lot of this, this design without seemingly really working with the evidence about its impact on students and student learning. Um, we, we found a really interesting study um, coming out of New Zealand by New Zealand Think Tank that actually had a put through a freedom of information request um, to the New Zealand government who, who's strongly or was particularly strongly behi um, behind this movement of open plan classrooms. And the government came back with um, evidence to show that it... it, it um, what they kind of base their policy decisions on, and and there was very little of it. And what there was was a TED talk, uh, hosted by an architect, <laughs> that was making these kind of bold claims about the traditional classroom being, as he said, obsolete, um, <laughs> which was was quite dramatic and, and and came across as very persuasive. But but really, where was his evidence to support support that really? Um, um, and in, I guess given that report by the New Zealand Think Tank, um, it will, it, the New Zealand Think Tank itself actually pointed out that it seems since that moment, uh, it seems that the government has been retreating from its position fully in support of open plan classrooms. Um, but yeah, in Australia, I guess it's unclear how common it really is. Uh, there was a study done uh in 2016 that suggested that it could be one in five classrooms in Australia that are fully open plan, uh, but um, it wasn't a very robust study, so it really needs to be further investigated. And I think the government in particular needs to inform itself about how common these, these classroom um, spaces are. Um, and, you know, some states have clearly thrown their weight behind it. So, for example... New South Wales, um, you know, they went on a spending blitz from 2017 and they uh, committed to build open plan classrooms each for up to 120 students at more than 100 new schools. Um, and also in Victoria, uh, there is uh, the Victorian School Building Authority who supports open plan classrooms uh, as well. Yes. 
Yes, you're right. Um, one of the conundrums that I think faces the, the move towards uh, open plan classrooms is that um, the, the main building, the, that's there, the permanent <coughs> building structures, you can build them open plan, but then if your numbers rise, you get transportable, portable buildings, usually two classrooms which are flexible but certainly not open plan in the sense of an open plan building. And so what you've got is... In, in almost all schools, a mix, a hodgepodge of types of buildings. So if you're going to be open plan for three quarters or half your school and your school grows, then the rest of the school isn't open plan. So how does that, and I think there's, there's some work here you guys could do, how do schools flip their... Uh, their approach to teaching and learning if they've got uh, a total uh, resource of school classrooms that are a mix match of a mishmash of open plan and more traditional types particularly when they get transportable buildings uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear Henry that you're putting things on our research agenda that's <laughs> good to hear um, it's a really interesting one isn't it because obviously school enrollments and demographics grow and change and that means that um, schools do need to be in a position where they can be flexible and sometimes they bring in portables and you're right they might in a, end up in a situation where they've got quite different spaces I think the the, the clearest answer to that question is it's really hard uh, I mean if you want to take a whole school approach um, to uh, curriculum, pedagogy, uh, a school leader will want to have consistency in instruction. And that's quite difficult to do if you've got really different spaces within which that instruction might occur. So if a school um, has decided that, that they want to follow the evidence and really implement a explicit teaching model across all of their classrooms, that might be easier in a portable where you've got one really clearly designated space that's soundproof um, and quite difficult in if you've got a number of open plan spaces that have several classes in them at once and which aren't flexible. So I think that um, the answer to your question is that it's probably pretty tricky for school leaders um, and when we speak to them, it is hard for them to, to manage the buildings that they've got. Mm, yeah, look, there's, there's so many questions that could be answered. And I just want to compliment you guys on what you're doing because we all want the best teaching and learning outcomes for our kids. And uh, at the end of the day, evidence-based research that's uh, rigorous and has efficacy is the basis on which decisions should be done, not perhaps on uh, uh, architects or others who might be uh, silver-tongued in presenting things. And so um, we look forward to more of the research. And I do congratulate you on the work that the Grattan Institute does across a host of things, including education, Amy and Annika. Thank Thanks you, very much, Henry. <laughs> That was uh, Amy Haywood, listeners, Deputy Program Director of Education, and Annika Stobart, who's a Senior Associate uh, at Education at the Grattan Institute. And yeah, it's a topic I've been uh, very interested in for a long time, having been in the profession for many years and seen many different types of learning spaces, often in the one school complex. It must, it must make uh, it very challenging for consistency of teaching and learning across schools.